You know, I think a, a smart entrepreneur or a dedicated educator would work on ways to enable these tools to tutor people on how to use them well and how to recognize that they're being faked out. Welcome to the Amplifying Cognition podcast, formerly the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by the unlimited potential of the human mind. Each week, I speak to incredible people who are working on how we can get to next-level thinking, sense-making, and decision-making so we can keep ahead in an accelerating world. My guests share how they amplify their productivity, the success of organizations, and the potential of humanity by using an array of technologies, including AI, innovative processes, and sometimes simple everyday practices. I do this podcast to learn. I learn so much from every guest I speak to, and I'm sure you will too. But if you are intent on amplifying your cognition, simply go to amplifyingcognition.com to access a trove of useful resources, including the Humans Plus AI learning community, resources and downloads from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thought Weaver app, which allows you to interface more effectively with AI, transcripts from all of our podcast episodes, and far more. That's amplifyingcognition.com. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to hear more and help others to find the podcast by liking or sharing. It makes a massive difference, so thank you. On this episode, you'll learn from Howard Rheingold. You'll learn more about Howard in this episode, but for those who don't know, he has been a seminal figure from the very early amplifying cognition movement, uh, melding technological and psychedelic inspiration to carve new possibilities. He is demonstrably and extraordinarily prescient, which has been illustrated by, amongst other works, his major books, Tools for Thought in 1985, quite a bit ahead of uh, most people, The Virtual Community in 1993, which chronicles the pre-internet uh, online communities and the early uh, online communities which we had before uh, uh, most other people connected, uh, Smart Mobs in 2002, about how we use mobile to connect and uh, create uh, things collectively, and uh, very relevantly to our conversation, Mind Amplifier in 2012, as well as his book Net Smart in 2014, which, amongst other things, uh, looks at the uh, how, do, how do we tell fake news and other useful uh, insights. So you can find more on his work at reingold.com, that's R-H-E-I-N-G-O-L-D.com. And in this episode, Howard goes back and tells the story of how he uh, became uh, fascinated by this stuff, his own journey, and he kind of knew everybody at the beginning of the uh, of the uh, this movement of realizing that technology could enable us to amplify our cognition. So he tells those stories, and it's really, you know, it's wonderful just to hear his uh, perspectives and his history. Uh, this is, you know, he is a seminal person. If we're doing amplifying cognition, we have to be talking to Howard, and here he is. Howard, it is wonderful to have you on the show. I am happy to be here. So you are perhaps the best person on the planet to be talking about amplifying cognition in terms of your history of uh, this being, you know, so seminal to all of your work over the years. And... Yeah, but, you know, perhaps you can describe that starting point of, you know, cognitive technologies or amplifying cognition. Where, you know, what, what was the starting point when you uh, started believing that this was possible? Actually, I think uh, cognition came into it a little bit later, but I, I was very influenced 
uh, by uh, taking psychedelics when I was a teenager, very early, 1962-1963, and that convinced me that consciousness was important. And, you know, as a high school student, uh, long before the internet, uh, what little research I could do indicated that there really wasn't uh, much uh, research in terms of science on, on consciousness. So I became interested in physiological psychology. It seemed to me that that was a, a, a way to approach uh, consciousness. And I was very impressed by a paper by a psychiatrist by the name of uh, Joe Camilla in San Francisco, who had hooked up some Buddhist monks to a, a brainwave machine, an, an EEG, electroencephalograph, and noticed that they had a larger percentage of the alpha frequency, around 8 to 12 cycles per second, in, in their, their ambient brainwaves than, than most people do. So then he had the genius idea of getting some non-meditators and, and, and sounding a tone whenever their, their brain hit the alpha frequency. Turns out that you can learn. Um, that was very interesting to me in terms of how much can you learn in terms of mastering those processes that, that were, were uh, previously inaccessible to, to consciousness. I was also interested in an idea called converging indicators, because the problem with consciousness, of course, is I've got mine and you've got yours, but there's no objective way of com comparing them or, or, or um, measuring uh, my experience or, or your experience. It seemed to me that if we could take introspection and, and marry that to some kind of electronic uh, uh, monitoring and training, that that would be a, a good path to understanding consciousness. And I actually went to a year of graduate school and, uh, and understood that I didn't want to spend the rest of my life in windowless rooms putting rat brains in, in blenders. Um, so uh, in the 1970s, living in, in uh, San Francisco, um, I got uh, wind of uh, the Institute of Noetic Sciences, uh, which was uh, started by a former Apollo astronaut to explore consciousness. So we tried to get interdisciplinary studies of consciousness going, and there wasn't a, a lot of action their uh, behaviorism was really in charge. So then fast forward to uh, when personal computers became available. I actually became very interested in them as a writer. Uh, my tools in the 1970s were a typewriter, a library card, and a telephone. And the idea that you could get information through your telephone, uh, that was very interesting to me. There was actually something called the New York Times Information Bank that opened in San Francisco in the 1970s, and I went to visit it, and they let me play with it. It was one of those uh, connections where you had to take a phone and, and put it into a, a cradle, and it's about 100 bits per second, and you could get abstracts of stories from the New York Times. So that was very interesting to me. Uh, Ted Nelson's book, I think, came out, I, I don't know, 76, 75, um, uh, Computer Lib. And, and he really introduced the idea that computers were not just for making calculations for, for science. And, and I was never one of those people who uh, 
who fiddled with electronics. I, I wasn't really a, a hobbyist, but I wanted to I wanted to find out. Um, specifically, I heard a rumor that you could write with a keyboard and a screen, and people, uh, older people, might remember that when when you were writing and rewriting something, you would print print some, you would type something, and then you would mark it up. Sometimes maybe you would cut the 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 pages up, um, and then eventually you'd have to retype it again. It's a, it was really a pain. Uh, that uh, I'll skip a lot of the story. That led me to Xerox Palo Alto Research Center, where a lot of what we know as a personal computer was uh, invented. Very specifically, the graphic user interface that that Steve Jobs saw that became the the Macintosh, but also the the Ethernet and the laser writer, and they were connected to the ARPANET. Um, I started using uh, uh, personal computers. I, I bought one of the first IBMs for uh, $5,000. I had to, to, to get a loan for it. And then another $2,000 uh, for a printer. This By now, we're up into the, the early 1980s. And so I, um, I bugged the people at Xerox Park. I called them every Friday to see if they had uh, work for a freelance writer. And uh, to... Uh, to her credit, the woman uh, who answered the phone never said "go away." And eventually, I got I got some gigs with them, and I I got an assignment to to wander around Xerox Park and find interesting people to talk to, and that led me to Doug Engelbart, and that's where amplifying cognition became uh, it, my my interest expanded to include that because. Um, See, talking to Doug and re particularly reading his 1962 paper, um, Augmenting Human Intellect, uh, it, it completely changed the way I thought about what I could do. It, it's not just a better typewriter. Engelbart was correct that if you can automate a lot of the low-level tasks, that frees your, your brain space to, to do other things that you weren't able to do before. And also... Um, one of the not Engelbart, but one one of the things that that they had written at Park in one of their publications jumped out at me. I underlined it and and uh, put three exclamation points in the in the margin, which is said that that with a, the graphic user interface, the screen can be, become a a cache for your memory. And uh, by then, I was interested in the subject. And there's a very famous paper by George Miller called "The Magic Number Seven, Plus or Minus Two. It turns out you can only keep about seven things in your in your awareness, in your attention at, at the same time. And they were saying you could use a computer to expand that. Um, that and the idea of hypertext that you could you could embed connections in documents to other documents well suddenly it was no longer the the, the library card and the, the telephone there was the internet came along and the uh, I became very interested through my work in the well which I wrote the book virtual community uh, about in in the social aspect of augmented uh, cognition it's not just the ability to think and communicate in, in ways that you are unable to do, without that aid. It's the ability to have that kind of an instant global think tank at your, your fingertips. And, and, you know, there's a whole uh, art to that.
you know, certainly part of it is, you know, it's not just the individual cognition. You know, cognition is can be collective and intelligence capabilities can be collective. And that's a big part of being able to amplify it. So during during that period, um, uh, before virtual communities, in, in 1985, you wrote Tools for Thought. And uh, Tools for Thought is a very uh, trendy uh, software category at the moment. Uh, so you're in a pretty early there. So what was the, the core ideas you were laying out in uh, the book Tools for Thought? Well, 1982 or 1983, Time Magazine put the personal computer on the cover. And, and that was the, the man of the year. The person of the year was a computer. And it was all about Steve Jobs and Bill Gates, and you know, which is fine. But they were standing on the shoulders of giants who were standing on the, the shoulders of, of giants. And so it, it seemed to me that this world that we were heading into, and if you read the first paragraph of Tools for Thought in 1985, it was saying essentially, what happens when these machines become so much more powerful? Because we know that they, they will. And what happens when hundreds of millions of people have them and they're connected to each other? Will this be a good thing or a bad thing for us? And of course, we discovered that, that it is, it's both. So Engelbart, of course, built on the work of, of others like Ivan Sutherland, who really invented com computer graphics, and J.C.R. Licklider, who wrote the, uh, the man-computer symbiosis uh, in 1960. And he, he said something I recognized as a, a writer, as a specialist in, in, in thinking and communicating. He said that as a scientist, he spent most of his time getting in position to think. And computers were no help because you had to submit these cards and come back with a pronoun. Why can't I, as a scientist, directly communicate with a computer? And so through his uh, his, his work at uh, ARPA, uh, the Defense Department's uh, think tank, he was able to sponsor the work that led to interactive computing and also Engelbart's work. So uh, there's a lot of interconnections between Engelbart, people that worked before him, and people like Alan Kay at, at Xerox Park, but but also you couldn't leave out probably the, the, the most influential scientist that the fewest people know about, um, uh, John von Neumann. Um, we wouldn't have the computers we have today if it hadn't been for him. Alan Turing and George Bull and uh, Ada Lovelace and, and, and Charles Babbage. There is a continuity of, of thought that we could use mechanical means to extend our, our, our thinking. And uh, my feeling was that this was a book for the general public, not, not really a, a, a technical book. My feeling was if we're going into this age where we all have these mind amplifiers and they're all connected together, wouldn't it be good to have an, a context for, for why they were created? And really specifically, one aspect of that interested me, which is that it wasn't invented by the phone company. It wasn't invented by IBM. Um, it, was, it, it really came about because of this extraordinary intersection of the, of the war machine, computer scientists in universities, and wild thinkers like Doug Engelbart, who took 10 years to get support for his work. Universities told him, yes, you can come study computer science, but don't talk about using it for anything but scientific calculations and, and business data processing. Now, uh, nobody knows that these days, unless you 
read tools for thought or, or, or something else. But the idea that you could use computers to think with was crazy. So if the Defense Department wouldn't do it alone. The computer industry and the telephone industry, they weren't going to do it. You, you had to combine them with the crazies. Um, like you. Crazy is not the, the right word. You know, Steve Jobs used that word crazy in his, his ads. You know, the, the, the dreamers, the ones, they wanted this tool for themselves. They didn't want an IPO. They didn't want to, to yeah. make the war machine better. They wanted yeah. to have a machine to think with. And um, it, would, it was just a rare convergence. And then a little bit later, it converged with, with venture capital, and, and a lot of things exploded be, because of that. But this is really a case of the strangest bedfellows coming together. And you, you can't see that now, but if you, if you unveil that history. So that, that's the answer to the question of what did I want to accomplish with Tools for Thought was to set that context. Yeah, that's that's incredible. Just the the fact that, as you say, they're all of the everyone you mentioned, all of these people are the building on each other's work and the foundations and the believers. And now it all seems so obvious. But for them, as you say, those were the you know those were the crazy, and you were right there in it, which is which is extraordinary. Very quick break to point you to amplifyingcognition.com. You'll find a stack of resources to help you get to next level thinking, sense making, and decision making, including the Humans Plus AI learning community with extensive courses and events, free downloads from my book Thriving on Overload, the Thought Weaver app to achieve more with AI, productivity programs for individuals and companies, and far more. And back to the show. So I know we're skipping over a lot, but almost three decades later, you wrote the book uh, Mind Amplifier, Can Our Digital Tools Make Us Smarter? And that's obviously a lot closer to today and the technologies that we have today. And you know, I think part of what you were looking there is this, this you know, what describes an inter interdisciplinary science of, of mind amplification and, you know, and, and pointing out this is not just about thinking, it's around emotions and empathy and so on. So... So what, what were the what's the essence of what you got to to a mind, am, mind amplifier, which is you know now many decades of work in the field. Well, I guess uh, by now I think that the theme is 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 emerging, which is I wanted to zoom back and and look at the greater context of tools for thought, and um, you really have to think about the long term coevolution of humans human culture and the tools we've made. If, if, you, if you stop thinking of tools as, as uh, physical objects, um, well, obviously speech, um, writing, and the history of writing is, is really interesting. The, the discovery of writing, writing was actually a means of uh, accounting for empires for yes. Hundreds, if not thousands, of years, till someone figured out that you could do other things with these marks on, on clay, and then the alphabet was a, a, a fantastic uh, amplifier of the what writing and and print uh, make available. I mean, print amplifies is that culture is no longer restricted to face-to-face -face communications. Um, and later, when I started, started uh, studying cooperation theory, this idea of cultural evolution came in. Cultural, biological evolution is very slow over millions of years. But with human culture, if you discover 
how to make a fire. Everyone in the tribe knows how to make a fire, and everyone in future generations of that tribe knows how to make a fire. And if someone else says you can throw some meat on that fire and uh, and digest your 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 food better, um, then everybody knows that. It's like a ratchet. Once knowledge exists in a culture, it it builds on itself. Well, like biological evolution, but much, much, much uh, faster. The context of this is that uh, the ability to transmit knowledge across time and space. Uh, Suddenly, many more people were able to think better and communicate better. And again, if you get a have a million people, some of them are going to have really good ideas. And we now, before that, those really good ideas are lost. Now they they spread through the, the culture. Well, if you're going to look into that coevolution, then you get to Walter Ong and Marshall McLuhan and others who talk about the linguistic aspects of cognition, the degree to which you can argue you can't really think without words. And that 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 thinking is that thoughts form through words in our our head. So the other vector, besides looking at the the coevolution of linguistic tools and and tools for transmitting knowledge, is the um, the stuff and 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 why I wrote uh, mind amplifier because I again I wanted to set the context, but again I wanted to make it for for people who were creating tools for thought, that in engineering school, they don't teach you about this language stuff. They don't teach you about the coevolution of of, uh, thinking tools. But when I was, uh, let's see, 2000, year 2000, I wrote Smart Mobs. And that was about the use of mobile devices and the internet to amplify collective action, to enable people to do things Together. And in fact, if you look back at these, all of these other tools, it's not just the ability of an individual to come up with better ideas and to get them across better. It enables groups of people, increasingly large, larger and more diverse groups of people, to do things together that they weren't able to do together before. So that led me to look into, well, um, who looks at that? Well, sociologists look at that. And there's one um, sociologist in, in particular uh, pointed me to Eleanor Ostrom's work uh, on, on the commons. Uh, Eleanor Ostrom was a political scientist. She won the Nobel Prize in economics, um, but was a political scientist. And she was reacting to um, to the uh, tragedy of the commons, the uh, paper by Garrett Hardin, in, in which he, he pointed out that the commons were areas uh, where that was not owned by anyone, and anybody could graze their cattle or their sheep there. Here in the U.S., we've got the, the Boston Common. That's what it used to be. Um, the commons became enclosed in, in, in Great Britain and, and elsewhere, and became privately owned. And, and what, what uh, Hardin said was that uh, if it's not privately owned, uh, people will destroy it. Not not because they're they're vicious, but because I want to graze as many sheep and cattle as I can, and so does my neighbor. And eventually, they overgraze and and it becomes a desert, like it did in in North Africa. Uh, and Hardin said that this was inevitable. 
And Ostrom said, is that really true? And did a lot of research on everything from police systems to irrigation systems and found out that people can manage commons. And she came up with seven design principles for, for those. I, I, I won't elaborate on them, but they're really simple things like the, the, the group, the commons needs to have a clear boundary, who's in and who's out. It has to have rules about how you supply it or, or how you, you use it. Um, and there have to be sanctions for those who break those rules, and there has to be a way for that group to change the rules. So um, it seemed to me that these intersecting vectors of looking at cognition and the evolution of, of language tools, and also the dynamics of what we're beginning to know about human cooperation, enable that part of, the, of tools for thought that's not engineering, and Engelbart was really uh, adamant about this. So I knew him for years, and and, and practically every time uh, we talked, he, he mentioned that, uh, well, he had a formula called humans using language, artifacts, methodology, and training. And he pointed out that the artifacts um, there's are, are literally millionfold more powerful than they were when he did the, his, his world-changing demonstration in 1968 all of the technology he used in that that famous demonstration and it's on youtube if you look at for the mother of all, all demos probably one icon on your on your phone has has more uh, memory uh connected to it than that but the the methodology and the training the kind of the soft part of it that that really has not amplified in fact, I wrote another book. I wrote a book in 2012 called Net Smart because of the question I've been asked, I'm sure you've been asked throughout throughout our careers, which is, are these personal computers and networks, are they a benefit for humans or are they not? Are they, are they quite the opposite? And my conclusion at that point was probably a bit too optimistic, which is, well, it depends on what, what you know. Um, we're seeing a tragedy of the commons online in that people are really, they're, they're spamming it and they're filling it with all kinds of, of, of garbage and it's, it's really, it's making it hard for the, the rest of us. There are things that you know and I know, um, it's not really rocket science about how to find your way around online. You know, from, so I, I wrote about um, uh, five different literacies, attention, crap detection, uh, uh, participation, collaboration, and, and network awareness, all of, all of which is to say that you need to know, know how to drive these vehicles now. Um, just having a smartphone, just having an internet account does not mean that you're going you're gonna to really do good uh, for yourself or anybody else. You've you got to know how to use it. Education is a, such a slow-moving and conservative institution I wrote that book in 2012. I, I still don't see the, that that high school kids are taught how not to be fooled when they're searching online. So there's, uh, I mean, as you say, you know, a lot of it's about how do we use these tools? They're useful. We got to use them well, and it's not taught to us, so we got to work it out for ourselves. I mean, that was a lot of the thesis of my book, Thriving on Overload. I mean, these are just fundamental skills, massive information. How do we deal with it? <laughs> We're not taught it, so here are some foundational principles. But um, you know, there's 
immense number of resources you've put out, and we'll provide links in the show notes. But one of the linkages to today is uh, language and words. And so now we have large language models, uh, which uh, have got to be able to pull together words in uh, appropriate sequences pretty well. So I'd love to hear your perspective on today, certainly any way in which you're using tools or any way in which you see the, the greatest potential from amplifying cognition from uh, the tools we have today, what are directions, what's, uh, what, what can and should people be looking at? Well, okay, let me, let me start by saying that I'm, I don't really have enough technical knowledge to, to talk about some of the big topics like will uh, a general artificial intelligence be a, a, an existential threat? That, that's, that's not what I asked you. <laughs> oh, well, uh, no, but uh, the, the discourse today Yes. Is about where are these things going to go? Um, I can't tell you a lot about about that in in the scientific sense, but I think it's important to point out that there were decades of research trying to build artificial intelligence by manipulating symbols artificially. Uh, yeah. Well, it turns out that if you get a couple of billion humans to put all of the good stuff, all of the garbage, everything they're playing with, all their art, um, all of their code, all of the discussions they have about their code um, online, and apply this uh, mathematical technique that I don't understand and can't explain that makes some kind of statistical connections between words and phrases and, and sentences. And suddenly you can ask it, to do things, and it will do things. So I did study cooperation for a while. I taught a seminar on cooperation theory. So I asked GPT-3, um, chat GPT-3, um, what are the main uh, arguments for the evolution of human altruism? And like three seconds later, I got it, and it was correct, and it was exhaustive, uh, and that was true. However, um, people uh, also get... Uh, incorrect uh, answers that are masquerading. Uh, there, there was, you know, a, a pretty well publicized case in which a, a lawyer got into a lot of trouble because he used the Chat GPT three and, and it came up with citations for law cases that didn't exist. So, I think what we were talking about in terms of you have to know how to use the tool. That's that's going to be in, incredibly important. Something that is that's a kind of a, a a side effect, but but really central to what what's been happening is that the ability of anyone anywhere to communicate uh, anything means that you can search for an answer and get a million answers, and some of them are going to be correct, and some of them are going to look really really good, and they're not, and some of them are going to be de deliberate misinformation. We've had another development that that. That Google and Facebook really uh, pioneered, which is the business model of selling advertising, micro-targeted advertising, because they collect so much information about an individual that they can tell advertisers exactly what, where they want to go. But when you apply this to misinformation and disinformation, we're seeing an arms race between the ability of people to, to, to make their way through, through all of this to the good stuff. Um, and the ability of others to manipulate them, to buy things or to believe things, or to vote in, in certain ways. And, and I think pretty 
I mean, one of the things I I do feel intuitively strong about is that that large language models are empowering misinformation and disinformation and targeted, micro-targeted propaganda much more than our ability to deal with it. So I'm, I'm seeing this delta between the, the literacy and the skills and 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 the capabilities. And, and, and clearly we're going to run into to trouble with that. But okay, put, put that aside. How is this a tool for thought? My immediate thought was that's that's what I see is that these could become the kind of symbiotic thinking partners that that Licklider talked about. That not only can you have um, this transformation of of everybody's knowledge, but you can train it on your own material. You can you can you can jam with yourself. Um, I think that that this is a great time for for people to be building tools like that based on on that and you know we're seeing some note taking tools now um and note taking is a, i mean that's a new amplification of uh, uh thinking of cognition that's that's based on a very old thing i mean everybody knows how to take notes but it turns out that if you have the right software and the right knowledge of how to use it you can use your notes to build, build this little knowledge base of your own and navigate that knowledge base. So again, are we talking about the entire human race? I'm afraid not. I think, you, you know, you're going to have to have people who are fairly well educated and who are willing to take the time to, to train themselves. In an ideal world, I could see education being enabling people to learn how to think for themselves with these tools. Totally. Totally. That's, I mean, that's, I say that education has got to be, first of all, giving you people a love of learning and also just being able to uh, giving them to understand how it is they can learn themselves with these tools. That's, that's almost all they need. So do you use uh, any particular software for your note-taking? You know, um, I'm not going to write any more books. Uh, I'm happy with what I've done and I'm, I'm, I'm making art now. I'm very interested in that. My, um, NetSmart 2012 I used uh, DevonThink and Scrivener. And uh, DevonThink is this monstrous uh, uh, software that enables you to, to clip things from what you're reading and, and your own notes and to tag them and to, and to categorize them in, in folders. And the more you add to it, the more the system can suggest other things in that system. And then Scrivener... It's really not word processing. Uh, it's not really a database, but it's a way to take your material and organize it um, for writing and, and enormous empowerment. Like if I look back on that typewriter, um, it's like I had a horse and buggy in, in my 30s, and now I've got a, a, a spaceship that, that will uh, take me anywhere I want to go. So so just to, to round out, I mean... What are your thoughts on augmentation of art? Well, um, I played with with uh, one, one of the generative AIs, uh, Midjourney, and uh, I think it's wonderful. I mean, uh, if I had more hours in the day, I, I would be really interested in learning how to do it. I I believe it really is an art. I have a friend who produces fantastic stuff that I've not been able to do with the same software. So again, 
um, it's a skill, it's an artistic skill, but also for the first time, you don't have to be able to render things with a brush or, or, or a pencil or even Photoshop if you can describe it well and it, it will appear, which is others have pointed out is essentially a spell. It's a conjuring. You're conjuring this image with, with words. You're turning words into images. I do acknowledge that I certainly didn't give permission and, I, and uh, a, a lot of other people including uh, programmers who are suing, um, didn't give permission for our work to be used. So it's kind of like a, a, the, the most massive copyright violation uh, in history. I think it's, there's a net good that comes out of it, but I, I think it's, it's at the expense of, uh, of something that you know, people have worked for. I now see that there are ways for people to, to watermark their work so that it, it won't appear and, and, and ways to do reverse searches to f find out whether your work was the basis of something. But um, there's trade-offs. There's always trade-offs. And, and I think the trade-off has already been made. I just don't, I, I, I don't see how it's, we're going to go backwards on this. And okay, so what we know from the last 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, these things we're playing with today, it's like, remember when Mac Paint first came out in 1984? You could actually manipulate pixels. Well, compare that to Photoshop. What was Photoshop maybe 10 years later? Um, we're going to see these tools, their capabilities amplify. Uh, you know, I think a, a smart entrepreneur or um, a dedicated educator would work on ways to enable these tools to tutor people on how to use them well and how to recognize that they're, they're being faked out. I think that's the most, you know, I wrote about crap detection in 2012. It's extremely important today, you know, politically, medically. Uh, it could kill you if you go and Google your symptoms and, and you find bad info and take hydroxychloroquine to, for your, your, your COVID-19. You, you, could, you could kill yourself or you could kill others uh, by propagating misinformation that, that you've heard, so it's 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 very important at a, a basic level, but I think also now at the level that when we've got this this genius that's also slips and lies, well, I don't know that we can change the the slips and lies part. If you're basing it on everything that humans put put online, I again I don't have the technical knowledge, but I I think that it's unlikely that you're going to be able to engineer guardrails to that. You're going to have to teach people to 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 deal with it. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's one of the, you know, the consistent theme since the beginning. I mean, you've been there since the very, you know, since the early days of thinking around these things and it's around, uh, I think the, that framing of all of the attitudes, you know, from the sixties and seventies and eighties and bringing that to today is, is exactly right. including in the, you know, the, how it is we learn the, both the aptitudes as well as the attitudes to, to use these tools well. So, so Howard, where can people find out more about your wonderful work and art? Well, my art, uh, you can find on Patreon, uh, and a lot of it is public. Um, and some of it you pay a dollar a month or whatever uh, to, to support my art material habit. And so that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N uh, dot com slash Howard Rheingold, one word, H-O-W-A-R-D-R-H. E-I-N-G-O-L-D. So that's where my art resides. Um, 
A few years ago, uh, Stanford helped me try to gather my digital materials together and put them together. So they're on my website, Um Website got hacked recently, and so it's being rebuilt. But that's that's uh, where you can, can find it. Fantastic. Well, all of those uh, links will be in the show notes. So thank you so much, not, not just for your time on the, the show, Howard, but also all of your contributions over the years. Uh, for you know, being a real seminal figure and bringing that consciousness into how technology has developed. I think that's still playing out today. So thank you. Yeah, well, it's a wonderful adventure that we're on. It may end in disaster, but it's, it's also a lot of fun. It's pretty, it's pretty exciting. <laughs> thank you for listening to the show. If you really want to amplify your cognition, go to amplifyingcognition.com where you can access a trove of useful resources to make your mind better and more effective than ever before. If you liked this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review and subscribe if you want to hear more of this. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful day.